All right, well, this morning we are in lesson 19. We are starting to bring uh, this Sunday school series uh, to a close. Now, I say that we still have some runway. We still like another, uh, another month or so. But I, I say that as, you know, it's, it's, it's been really good for us to reflect and think about these things on the doctrine of God and his decree. So this morning we are in chapter 11 uh, of Sam Renahan's book. And that is entitled, The Decree and Related Questions. Now, on your notes, I put part two. That's because I forgot to update for part one. So if you want to you know, cross it out, this is just part one. We will have part two next week. But so this morning, we're going to continue on with what Arnie had hit on last week with the doctrine of concurrence, right? The idea, if you will, uh, this is how I labeled it, uh, Arnie's black box, right? You can remember the PowerPoint. And then all the things in the middle, right? And then just and then you keep the outcome straight, right? God's sovereign, man's responsible, right? And then the black box, right? Kind of answering all all, all the questions. Um, all right, so uh, so that, that that's going to help lay the groundwork of uh, some of the stuff that we're going to look at this morning, thinking about God's decree. So, as our habit has been, um, we will do the two catechism questions. Then we're going to read uh, a total of. Six paragraphs or five paragraphs from from our confession, two from the chapter on God's decree, but then we're going to read three from God's providence. And the reason why is because God's providence is simply the execution of His decree, right? So in regards to content, it doesn't differ. It's it's, it's the difference between what's purpose and then what's accomplished. But there's some helpful things said in regards to God's providence, as it's going to relate to the issue of sin that I thought was helpful for us to bring up and kind of help lay some groundwork. Uh, and, and then we'll get into the lesson. So. Let's go ahead and hop in uh, from the Baptist Catechism. So question 10. <clears throat> so I'll read the question, and then we'll respond with the answer. Question 10. What are the decrees of God? Answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. All right, question 11. How does God execute his decrees? Answer. God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. All right, excellent. All right, if I can have a total of five volunteers. So we're going to read uh, paragraphs one and two of chapter three from our confession, and then paragraphs one, two, and four of chapter five from our confession. So you want to get uh, paragraph one of three, paragraph two. All right, you get three or five, one, Mia, five, two, and then who can get five, four? Matt, all right. You all know who you are. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decrees. Uh, paragraph two. God knows everything that could happen under any given conditions. However, his decree of anything is not based on foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing it that it would occur under such conditions. Perfect. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, 
to the end of that which they were created, according unto, unto his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. All right, excellent. Yeah, hopefully you guys also benefit. I think that kind of helped lay some helpful groundwork as we think about this issue uh, related to God's decree and then specifically thinking about how does this relate to when we, when we think of sin, right, and, and, and appropriate ways in which we should categorize and think of these things. So uh, like we had briefly stated, so Arnie, helpfully the last two weeks, have, has helped us think through this doctrine of concurrence, right, that God is sovereign, and that uh, his decree has determined the infallibility of the, the future of all things, right? He, he, has, he has decreed and purposed all things. And yet at the same time, uh, and this was through the use of secondary causes, right? That God is, um, uh, 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 through, through these different causes, God has ordained for even the, the secondary causes and is not just the primary cause of all things. If you guys remember, I think, uh, Arnie, last week you used the phrase, uh, it's, it's not a zero-sum game, right? It's not like, well, it's either man or God, right? It's, it's both, and it's working together and it, it, with God's sovereign over, over all things. So this week and next week, we're going to look at how sin and suffering kind of fits into this picture and thinking about, okay, well, then how, what, does that, what does that mean as we then take a step back and think about how God uses means, and then we'll take a farther step and then think about well, what about some of those texts where it indicates you know a change in god or a change in his like purpose right like he, he purposed to overthrow Nineveh and then he relented and so we'll look at some of those texts and some of that will be next week so on your notes uh first we'll start with the decree and sin now what i thought would be helpful is really to just look at several biblical texts because what i want to do and, and wrong. I know we've kind of been building this foundation from the, the previous month or so, looking at different texts as it relates to God's sovereignty, and, and specifically as it relates to his eternal purpose or his decree. What I wanted to do was really kind of hone in on some texts related to God's decree and sin, right? And to think about how, what, what, what are like the, what are some of those texts that we need to think through together that help us kind of formulate this doctrine as it's, as it's expressed in, in our confession. So with that, um, <clears throat> so as you guys can see on your notes on the front and back, we're, we're gonna, we, we've got several we're going to hit. So 
what we'll do is we'll, we'll read one, we'll kind of park it, work through it, and then we'll go to the next one. So that'll kind of be the, the, the motto for, for these. So if you will, open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 50. So there was just no way I was going to include all these texts and uh, be able to put it on uh, one page. So um, Genesis 50, and let's look at verses 19 and 20. So as you're turning there, just to give you some background. So Genesis 50, we're coming to the conclusion of uh, Joseph. He's in uh, Egypt under Pharaoh, right? And, and, and everything that was leading up to this, right, was, was the, 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 the sins against Joseph and the suffering of Joseph, right? His brothers had planned evil against him. They had, they had plotted his murder, right? And then when that went sideways, they said, hey, you know what? We could, we could do something better, right? Let's go ahead and um, let's sell him, right? And then, and then Joseph had years of... Um, uh, suffering, right? He had Potiphar, Potiphar's house and everything that happened uh, um, with, with, with Potiphar's wife and being falsely charged of, of rape and then going to, to, to the prison, right? And the things that happened there, all these things, right, were, were, were being worked out where eventually Joseph became second in command in Egypt and God had given him wisdom to interpret Pharaoh's dreams so that the Egyptians and the rest of the people would not starve with this future coming famine, right? So that kind of like sets the background of Genesis, you know, 37 to 50. So when we get to verses 19 and 20, if I can have a volunteer, he'd be willing to read verses 19 and 20. What Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Excellent, yeah. So here's the thing, right? So and what I want to do is focus on verse 20, because I think for our purposes, as we're thinking about God's decree and sin, I think this highlights a couple key things, and it builds on some of the things that Arnie had said last week. So look in verse 20, where it says, As for you, right? So Joseph is speaking to his brothers. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. And that word there, meant, is, is the word for purpose, right? In your heart. What, what was going on in the heart of his brothers? Well, it was murder. It was, it was envy. It was jealousy. It was these different, these different sinful things that, that they had purposed in their heart, right? So we see that identified with his brother, with his brothers. But then look at the rest of that sentence, right? But then it says, but God, right? But God what? But God, and then... That's the, the word meant is literally the, the same word in Hebrew, right? So here you have men purposing something and God purposing something, and we're talking about the same event, right? And, and this goes right back to what Arnie had said, right? Uh, the last, last, last couple of weeks, we're talking about concurrence or these, the, these parallel pictures, if you will, right? If you will. It's the same event, the same things we're talking about, right? And in one sense, it's from God's perspective, right? And in another sense, from man's perspective, right? In, in this case, Joseph and his brothers willingly and willfully did these things, right? They were inclined by their own sinful nature, right? As they saw the way in which Jacob treated Joseph and he had the, the, uh, um, the, the cloak, the coat, right? It was like the multicolored and that just was infuriating. So they made these decisions themselves, and, and, and here, Joseph rightfully affirms that. But then he steps back and says, but God had purposed that. Now, we know from, the, from, from what we've studied so far on the doctrine of God's decree, when we think about purpose or intent, right, the thing 
that God had done. Well, when did God purpose this? When did God have the intent for this, right? It goes back to before the foundation of the earth, right? All, all the way back to his hidden counsel. So, so we see this idea of man being responsible. And, 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 and notice this in verse 20, right? Because it's, it's always helpful for us to think of applications when, when, when we think of these doctrines. And look how Joseph is using it here. He uses it in a way to encourage his brothers, right? Look, even though you guys completely botched it, right? What does he do? But look at what God is doing. Look at how God is even using sinful purposes to bring about good as he intends, right? And, and then the takeaway from that is, wow, what a wise, kind, and sovereign God that we serve, right? Who could even use sinful things like this for, his, for the glory of his name and the good of his people, right? And in this case, for, for many, that they should be kept alive. All right, so let's go to Isaiah. So, that, so I think that's a helpful text. We got, we got another one in the Old Testament, then we'll do a couple in the New. So let's go to Isaiah. <clears throat> so Isaiah chapter 10. This is a little bit longer, uh, but, but still helpful as we, as we think about this. So Isaiah 10, and let's read verses 5 through 16. So could I have a volunteer who'd be willing to read... Um, <clears throat> Uh, 5 to 11, and then someone get 12 through 16. So who'd be willing to get 5 through 11? All right, Norm, and then who'd be willing to get 12 through 16? I see you. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, Isaiah 10, 11. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. Take spoil and cease plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart, his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy, and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant part of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirp. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield it him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift it, lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. Alright, so here's, a, here's an interesting text, right? So Israel is Taken, uh, t uh, taken captive, right, and plundered by the Assyrians. 
And, and, and this was the judgment for their sins. And God used human means to accomplish this, right? He could have rained fire down from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, and, 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 and judge them that way. But instead, he uses a human instrument. And even in the midst of using a human instrument, the human instrument was responsible where they went too far. Because from God's perspective, he was uh, punishing his people, right? But then from, um, uh, 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 from uh, Assyria, right, from the king of Assyria's perspective, he ended up taking it too far. This is my opportunity to take more. Look at my power. Look at my strength. Look at what I can accomplish. I could have a universal monarchy, right, if I just keep smashing peoples, right, and taking kingdoms. And then God says, like, what's wrong with you, right? But, and, and, and then appropriately, and, this, and, and notice this in, verses, uh, in, in verse 15, right? Because we'll see these kinds of questions in the Old Testament, and Paul will pick up on this like in Romans 9, right? Where he's, where he's asking the question, shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Or the saw magnify itself against the, uh, him who wields it, right? Like, really? Really, right? The, um, uh, you are simply an instrument, right? But notice this as well. Assyria is held accountable for Assyria's sins, even in the midst, right, of while uh, 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 um, uh, she was the rod of God's anger, if you will, with Assyria. I'm sorry, with, um, with, with Israel, right? So it, it, God is not punishing Assyria for taking Israel captive, right? That, w- that was a part of God's plan. But it was how Assyria viewed it and how Assyria took it, right? And God laid that at Assyria's feet. So Assyria was still held accountable, and yet God was still sovereign, even in executing judgment and chastising his people, his covenant people, the, 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 the uh, nation of, of Israel. So I think those are two helpful Old Testament texts. I want to look real quick at, at, uh, at a couple New Testament texts. And, um, and let, let's do that. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. And again, we, I know we've looked at this a couple times, but I want to make sure you know, we hit it because it, it helps to kind of reinforce some of these things. So Acts chapter 2, and let's look at uh, verse 23. <clears throat> Who'd be willing to read Acts chapter 2, verse 23? All right, Brian. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right, so note, notice two things, right? Similar to what, again, we're just going to go back to what Arnie had said about concurrence or things being together in parallel. It is laid at the feet of, uh, here in this context, with, um, uh, in particular with the Jews, right? That, that you are men of, of lawless hands. You have crucified. You have killed. You should rightly be uh, 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 con- convicted and, and feel guilty over this, right? And, and, th- and that's what happens in verse, uh, what is it, verse uh, 30, 39 or 40, right? Um, uh, uh, right? Or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, in, in verse 37, right? When they heard this, they were cut to heart, appropriately so. And yet, even the most sinful action, right? Crucifying the innocent Son of God taking on flesh was a part of God's definite plan, right? And again, that definite plan is language of the decree. Or we go over to, um, um, you know what? All right, we, we, we've hit on Acts 4, so just go ahead and mark that one down. We, we can hit that um, or just 
uh, we can we can hit that another time. Let's let's go all the way over to First Peter. I want to go to First Peter because I know I want to make sure we lay we lay some of the groundwork. So go with me to First Peter. Um, so a couple books over. You got uh, uh, Hebrews, James, First uh, Peter. <clears throat> let's go to First Peter. First Peter chapter one, <clears throat> and let's read uh, verses eighteen through twenty. So First Peter. One. Again, we're, we're thinking about God's decree, his eternal purpose, his, his eternal plan, and then we're thinking about sin uh, and, and how these two, two work together. Who'd be willing to read verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1? Crystal? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. All right, excellent. So here's the key word in, in verse 20. Uh, he was foreknown, right? He was foreordained. So here, this is Christ, right? The son of God with a human nature, the mediator between God and men. But what in particular about Christ was foreknown, right? Not, it, it, was, it was everything about him, but in particular in verses 18 and 19, it is the redemption in, by which he redeems sinners, right? Well, how was that redemption accomplished? We go back to Acts 2 or Acts 4. It was by lawless hands crucifying him. And yet at the same time, God satisfying his wrath, right, on Jesus. So Jesus was foreknown and foreordained to be the ransom to um, to, to buy back God's people and, and with what? Not, not, not with gold or silver that will perish, right? But with his precious blood, right? And how, how, how does that happen? Through sinful and lawless deeds. And this whole lamb and uh, blood and redemption is going to be picked up. So go, go with me to, to uh, Revelation, right? An, another text, right? And I, I want us to be able to think about these things, right? Because what we're seeing is it's a part of God's plan, that it even includes the sinful actions of men, right? Even some of the most severe and heinous sins, like the crucifying of the Son of God taken on flesh. So let's read Revelation 13, and we will read, uh, and let's read verse 8. Uh, Who would be willing to read Revelation 13, verse 8? Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. All right. So I want, I want to slow down and just work with this for a second. So um, when, when we talk about a lamb and we talk about a lamb that's slain, what is the Old Testament picture that, that, that's supposed to be drawing up in our minds? Passover, right? The Passover lamb and the Passover lamb being slaughtered so that God's people were protected from God's judgment when he had the 10th plague on Egypt, right? He passed over the houses that had the blood from the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. So here, but it's talking about the greater lamb. But work with me, right? So, so there's people who are making war in verse 7 against the saints, right? And in verse 8, it says, uh, d- describing, descri- describing these people, right? The ones who dwell on the earth, these earth dwellers, 
And in verse 8, it says, everyone whose name has not been written. And if we wanted to, we could, we could, we could read it this way. Uh, whose name has not been written in the book of life, right? But there's qualifiers to this, right? It answers the question of when. Everyone whose name has not been written. And then it includes the preposition before the foundation of the world, right? So it's answering this when question. So when were these names written in the book of life? Well, they were written before the foundation of the world. And there were certain names that what? Were not written, right? And, and here in Revelation 13, he's making that connection. He's, he's connecting the people whose name is not written in the book of life and those whose name is written. Uh, uh, it is written. I'm struggling to talk this morning. Bear with me. So it's answering the question of when. But then notice this. And, and, and Rev, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the book of life, right? In Revelation 20 is another example of the book of life. But here, there's, there's another characterization, right? It is in the book of life of the lamb who was slain, Right? And this word for slain is a, is a violent word, right? It has the idea um, of, uh, of, of, of slaughter, right? It's used to describe the violent persecution of the saints in the book of Revelation and their death. So what we're talking about here, when we read about the lamb in verse 8, who was slain, we're talking about something with violence, right? We're talking about something um, uh, of, of that nature, right? So it's going back, when we put these together, it's showing the same things that we've been looking at in Acts or in First Peter, that even Christ and his ransom, right? And being crucified by sinful men, even this was a part of God's purpose and plan. Now again, we might not be able to explain every jot and tittle, right? Like, like, uh, like Arnie was saying with his black box, right? You know, where it's like, look, we might not be able to answer every question. And we know, we know what it does say, right? But then we want to patiently and slowly try to, you know, pull on, on each of the threads, right? To like, okay, as we can help to understand more of how this comes together. So, all right. Any questions so far, right, as, as we've kind of looked at some of these texts, establishing, okay, we, we, we've seen and demonstrated that God's decree even includes the sinful actions of men, that even sin is under God's decree. So any, any questions before we kind of look in, and I, we're going to look at another side here in just a, just a minute. So any, any questions or thoughts? All right. Nope, sounds good. All right, so this next section, and I'm, I'm really looking at a lot of text uh, borrowing from Burkhoff in his, uh, in his little systematic. So the second part, so we, we've, we've, we've seen how God's decree includes God's sovereignty and purposing, even the sinful right, actions and intents of men. And yet at the same time, we affirm, and rightly so, that God is not the author or approver of sin, even while it is bound up in his eternal purpose with all things, right? So now we're going we're to look at some of these texts that help us to affirm this very thing, that God is not the author or approver of sin. So who, who'd be willing to get Deuteronomy 32? So let's go, we'll go back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32. 
And let's read verses 3 through 6 of Deuteronomy 32. All right, Norm. Deuteronomy 32, 3 to 6. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. All right, excellent. Or no, sorry, keep going. Sorry, verse 6. Yep, go ahead. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? All right, excellent. Thanks, Norm. All right, so here's what I want to do. So I'm going to ask uh, um, two questions. So I'll ask one, and then we'll kind of work through it together. And then I'll ask the second question, and we'll work through it together. So here, and this is really just more observational, what is ascribed to God in verses 3 and 4? What, what, what is being proclaimed about God in verses 3 and 4? And, th- and this is just, go ahead and chime in. Hmm? Perfect. Yeah, he's perfect. Yep, all of his ways are perfect. Yeah, justice, he's the rock. What's... Yeah, greatness. Faithfulness. Yeah, faithfulness. Yeah, without iniquity. All right, excellent. Yeah, nope. And I, and, and I know some of those are just like inherent in the text, but I, I want us to be seeing and thinking about that, right? So, because here's what we're going to see, right? We're, we're going to see this contrast, and this is over and over again in Scripture, especially when we're dealing with the sinfulness of man. It's going to be this rehearsal that God is upright right? He, he's not the one committing sin. He's, he's, he's not the one uh, with iniquity, right? He's upright. He's just. He's faithful. All And, and uh, look at verse 4, right? Like not hesitating to use this word all. All his ways are justice, right? That, that God is a righteous God. He's not unfair, right, in, in that standpoint, right? He upholds his justice, okay? So we see this. Now let's contrast. So in, in, in verses 5 and 6, so what are the ways in which the people are described? What are, what are some of the ways, in, what, what's ascribed to the people in verses 5 and 6? Blemish. Yeah, blemish. Foolishness. Yeah, foolishness, senseless. Without wisdom. Yeah, without wisdom. Crooked. Yeah, crooked. Yep, corrupt. No, that, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's almost like in verse 6, right? He's like, is not he your father who cheated you, right? Who, who, uh, who, the one who had, um, uh, uh, made you and established you. Or I'm sorry, I said he too cheated. Uh, who created you? I apologize. Um, uh, um, so, yeah, right? It's, it's like asking these questions, and the point is, asking these questions so that way the people come to the conclusion, it's me, right? The problem is not something outside of me. The problem is me, right? And, 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 and we see this kind of rehearsed over and over again, right? And even, uh, um, and for time's sake, uh, uh, even in Psalm 92, 15, right? Where uh, uh, one of the things that it, that it says is that, um, that there is no um, un- unrighteousness in God. It says uh, to declare 
that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Right? So again, just this, the same affirmation. Um, and turn, turn with me to, to the book of James. We're going to go to James. And while, while you go there, uh, James chapter 1, I'm just going to read Ecclesiastes real quick. Right? Because we're going to see the same contrast here. And, it, and it's the same one that, that we need to continue to affirm. So turn with me to James 1. And as you're going there, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 7, uh, verse 29. <clears throat> see, this alone I have found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. Again, affirming what God has done as upright, and then man is the one scheming and, and deviating. So turn with me to James, so in James, in James chapter 1. And this is, again, like one of the quintessential texts, right, as we kind of think about this subject, right? And in James chapter 1, um, who would be willing to read verses 13 through 15? James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. All right, Mia. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, when it has conceived, gives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, excellent. So... In verse 14, notice where sinful temptation comes. Sinful temptation comes from sinful man and sinful woman. It comes from a sinful nature, right? That, that has been inherited and passed down from our first parents. And notice that each one is sinfully lured and sinfully enticed by his own desire. God is not the one who's tempting anyone with sin. But there, it's, it is interesting in this text, because look at me in verse 12, where it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under, what, trial, right? Or another word for that is testing, right? But it's the same Greek word that's used in verse 13 for temptation, right? And again, how do we understand what words mean? Well, we look at their context, right? Well, testing and trial are different than temptation. And there's a nuance that we need to make here, right? Because God will test his people, right? Like in Psalm 11 in verse 5, it says, God tests the righteous. Or you'll hear David say, test my heart, right? And the implication is, it's to demonstrate what's in there. Let it, with a test or a trial, it proves what's, what's invisible, right? Because it becomes visible in one's actions. So God will test his people, right? Like in uh, uh, Genesis 22 with Abraham, it says that God tested and then God tested Abraham and said, go and take your son and what? Take him up to the mountain and offer him as a burnt offering, right? He was testing to prove or show what was in his heart. But this was not God enticing man to sin, right? Because there's a difference here. God is not tempting anyone or, uh, uh, or trying to push or, or, or work inside someone to sin. <clears throat> and I really liked what John Calvin said here in, in, his, uh, in his commentary on James. Uh, and I want to say that, that this is on your notes. Yes. So uh, who'd, be willing, um, who'd be willing to read uh, the Calvin quote? All right. 
draw what is hid in our hearts is a far different thing from inwardly alluring our hearts by wicked lusts. He then treats here of inward temptations, which are nothing else than the inordinate desires which entice to sin. He justly denies that God is the author of these because they flow from the corruption of our nature. This warning is very necessary, for nothing is more common among men than to transfer to another the blame of the evils they commit. And then they especially seem to free themselves when they ascribe it to God himself. This kind of evasion we constantly imitate, delivered down to us as it is from the first man. For this reason, James calls us to confess our own guilt and not to implicate God as though he compels us to sin. All right, excellent. I thought that was really helpful, right? Where Calvin is helping us to appropriately think of, right, as, as we look at like in, in, in James chapter 1, how should we think about temptation as it relates to God, right? And I like what John Gill pointed out. He said, God is not tempted by evil. There is nothing delightful in evil to God, right? When we say that God is not tempted by evil. Uh, 1 John 1, 5 and 1 John 2, 16, unfortunately, I'll have to leave. Um, uh, so we'll just keep that on your notes. That can be looked up at another time. So now what I want to do is, is hit on, I think I've got four in our, in our notes. Yeah, four. And then we're going to hit on um, one more and then look at means and a couple other things for next week. So what are some uh, implications from this, right? How should we helpfully think about sin, God, and his decree as we put this together, right? As our confession has stated and we read earlier. Well, notice first, sin on your notes is a defect, and Renahan helpfully here distinguishes between an efficient cause that produces an effect and a deficient cause that produces a defect. Now, sin is a defect. It's a perversity, right? It's a corrupting of what is good. It is a, it is a straying. It's missing the mark of God's good design, right? Some, some of these words that are used for sin in the Bible. And sin has a deficient cause, not an efficient cause. God is not sin's deficient cause. God is not the author of sin. Sin, and this is, goes back to Arnie, what Arnie was teaching on, on first and secondary causes. Sin is a secondary cause, yet it is still in God's eternal degree. And, and another way that theologians have tried to distinguish this is to use the phrase God's per, um, permissive will, or I'm sorry, God's permissive decree. And now when we say that, um, I, want, I want to clarify something. That is not saying that God permits in the sense that he approves of sin, right? But it is that he permits or allows for it, right? That he does not uh, remove sin on its first occasion. Now, why he does that is a part of his good, just, and holy ends that he's purposed, right? In himself from eternity past. So, and the way in which that comes together goes back to Arnie's black box, right? When we think about secondary causes, right? He, he categorized it in the three ways. You've got the necessary, like, the necessary cause, like gravity. You've got the, uh, uh, I, think, I think it was called the free cause, right? Which is man purposing as a creature, right? In accordance with his desires. And then also uh, contingently or coincidentally, right? Even though that word was used with uh, much fear and trepidation, yeah. <laughs> Uh, right? In, in, in which, from man's perspective, things are like accidents, right? We're just, it, it seems like it's a random chance, right? And how all those things are working together, all playing out 
according to God's plan. So, so first we see sin is a defect, right? We think of Ecclesiastes 7, God made man upright. But then secondly, God permits sin and suffering. The decree of God includes all things. And, and, like, and, and, and we've already hit, hit on several of these things. So what does this not mean? Well, it does not mean, um, uh, or word it this way, uh, God is not the author of sin. This is, this is what it does mean. I'm trying to, I'm getting confused here with my language. God is not the author of sin. God does not cause humans to sin. He does not work in us sinful do- desires, nor does God sinfully tempt anyone to sin, right? So we need to uh, um, help qualify these things, right? And um, we agree with Psalm 5-4 that when God permitted sin, he did not approve it. Psalm 5-4 says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, right? So again, I think some of these things we understand, but it's helping to make sure we keep them all together and, and held up together, It's interesting, uh, in this section, uh, one of the things Renahan does, he cites an older Puritan, George Walker, and he makes this case, well, what would really need to happen if God were to be the author of sin? And, he, and so, he was, so he thought through, well, here would be three of the needed ingredients, if you will, right, for God to be the author of sin. He says, first, God would need to counsel and persuade men to sin. Second, he would need to incline or stir up their hearts to sin. And then third, he would, um, uh, when he willingly permits sin and is able to stop it, God is bound by some law that he must hinder and stop sin. In other words, God, if you permit sin, as soon as it comes in, you need to squash it, right? But in, but in none of these three, right, God is the author of sin. God is not obligated to immediately stop it. Uh, and, and he's not guilty, right, by association for not stopping it. Because he is governing and directing it, like we think of with Christ, for a greater purpose in which God highlights and shows off his own glory. So, um, so let, let, let me... Um, this is a, a quick sell for next week, right? Next week, that's what we're going to be looking at as we think of means to an end, a part of God's holy purposes with how he ordains and directs sin, even though he is not the efficient cause, the one who is working in people to sin, how he still brings glory to his name. And we'll, we'll look at some of, some of those texts. Um, all right, so the last two. So we see sin is the result of man's free choices. And again, this works with what Arnie said about secondary causes, right? And when we use free choices, we're using it in that, in that way in which we define the last couple of weeks as a creature bound by his desires, right? His purposes, the things that are going on in his heart. So for someone who um, has a sinful nature, right? Man has free choices that are bound by that sinful nature in which sin taints even those free choices, right? That they're not compelled from, from that standpoint. 
And there's a text there, Jeremiah 32, 35, where it talks about in the Valley of Hinnom, where they were burning children. And God says that it did not even enter my heart, right? And what, he, what, he, what he's trying to show is, you guys have been so creative, right, with sin. And here's these things that, that, that God, you know, if, if you will, has not even thought of, right, to help contrast himself with man. Now, God's not saying you didn't know these things, right? We don't take it over, overly literalistically, right? But he's trying to help contrast between man. And, and what he's emphasizing is these have been your choices that you're responsible and culpable from, from. So, let me ask, uh, lastly, I know we've got suffering results from various causes, similar to what we talked about with Arnie with the secondary causes. I know. I should have just asked for, like, the, uh, the black box, and I could just keep pointing. You know, that would have made it easier. Yes, uh, I, I do agree. But, um, but suffering, right, so we think about sin and we think about suffering. Suffering comes as a result of, of, of many things, right? If you, um, uh, if, if you jump off of a really tall building, right, and you break your legs, right, that's suffering, but it's also with what, uh, you know, what's been labeled as necessary causes, right, gravity working, right? But then there's other things in which man has not planned, like a car accident, right, where you have all these factors working together, right? But again, from God, so this is from man's perspective, but from God's perspective, right, God has... God has foreordained all these things. So I know we covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, does anyone have any questions or, or comments before we come to a close? Yeah. Um, let's see if I can word this out right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like uh, uh, identity is a big deal now. Yes. And, and uh, you might hear, um, well, God made me this way. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, if we really cool to dig in on how to explain to somebody that yes, you're created by God, but yes. you have the responsibility mm. and yes. the choices. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's 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 important, right? Um, yeah, especially in our day with how that's used. Yeah, and it, it makes me think about like Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine. God made man upright and then but it, but it's really the scheming of man or or like in Romans one where it's the outworking of the idolatry of man's heart, right? There's a sense in which we feel compelled, right, by our own sinful desires, but how it gets blended and tied in with identity, and you can't, you, you know, uh, if, if that one characteristic or two characteristics so identify me that, you know, you, it's something I can't change, right? It, it becomes a different category. Yeah, no, I think that's, you're right, that, that, that's something that's worth more kind of thought, like how to work through that and help, you know, help someone, you know? Uh, in regards to um, God's permissive decree, would would Job one and two be good examples of that? How he allows, yes. uh, and it's not God that's authoring it; is He allows Satan to tempt Job into sinning against God? Yes, yes, yeah, and and you, and you can see that from so, and that would be one of those things from God's perspective. He's testing Job, right, to show what's in Job's heart, right. But from Satan's perspective, what's Satan doing? He, he's like, hey, I'm going to test him. I'm going to make him sin, right? Where, where here, and, 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 and you have, you have the, the, this parallel, the, this concurrence working together, right? But yeah, Job 1 and 2 is an excellent example, right? Uh, and, and seeing how God, that, that, you know, the devil is God's devil, right? Accomplishing his holy purposes in a, in a, in a wise way that, that, that's beyond our understanding. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good example.
Yeah, Norm. When we read the text about Assyria, it's helping me with the current situation in Ukraine where Putin is doing everything that he wants, but at the same time, he does not know it, he does not intend it, but he is a pawn in God's hand to accomplish his own purposes in Ukraine. Yes, as is every, every world leader and power down to the mayor, police chief, firefighter chief, principal, right? Yep, exactly, exactly. All right, well, let's go ahead. Let's, let's thank the Lord for our time. Father, we do worship you and thank you and ask that you would um, even help these truths to encourage our hearts as we're reminded even how you use sin as a part of your sovereign purposes. And we are so thankful because it is through uh, the, the, the wrongful death, if you will, of the Son of God, how he was crucified by lawless hands, that, that in him we have the full forgiveness and redemption with which, uh, with, with, with which uh, Jesus has accomplished for us. So, Father, we pray, even bless us now as we go into worship together as a people, for your namesake, amen.